Good afternoon. It's one o'clock, and I see that most folks are on to their dessert, so it's our usual time for opening the floor to uh, questions, and I'll invite Dave to come back up and uh, uh, answer some of your questions. So we have a mic up here. Please come up, use the mic, um, uh, introduce yourself, and uh, pose your question to, uh, to Dave. So who's going to start? You know, I do a presentation for service providers, and I always have a portion of that presentation that's called Stump Dave. So if they want to challenge anything I said, uh, you know, they should bring it forward and try to stump me how I, I can't answer their questions. So go ahead. Feel free to stump Dave. Oh. Okay. I'm getting a question from the floor. Do you... Oh, go ahead. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. I'd like to ask you, Dave, thanks for your presentation, by the way. Uh, how much uh, does government funding or lack thereof play into your job? Well, the Lethbridge Association for Community Living itself uh, prides itself in being independent from government funding. Uh, we, do, we do connect uh, on different projects and, and receive government funding to do the, the good work in the community. But there certainly are, when I, when I talk about the community's role in supporting people with disabilities, that doesn't mean that services then can be less funded or less important. Uh, there's lots of uh, good professionals out there that, uh, su that support people in creating those positive relationships in the community. So I I'm not suggesting in any way that we're letting government off the hook for their responsibility to make sure all citizens are, are engaged in their community. And it's, uh, as most people know, it's a little tough right now for any sort of uh, government programs or, or government support for any project that's going on. Okay, that nice lady in the back had a question for me. I don't think I'll need a mic, as you know from yeah, You have to use the mic, evidently. Hi, Dave and people. Uh, you used the term, Dave, and, and your um, at one point talking about people being safe in the community, and I, I didn't quite get that. You used the term, uh, the word safe, a couple of times, and uh, what do you remember the? What yes. Yeah. Okay, uh, that was my question. What I was talking about, by the way, this is Joy Lawson, who also has a lot of experience in the field and a lot of experience with me as well. I was really conscious about uh, conscious about speaking before people were having lunch. I remember as a little boy, my dad being a, a retired United Church minister, that sometimes he'd be admonished for being a little bit long-winded and taking people into their lunch hour, and, and he would say, well, the power of the message will overcome the people's hunger, but uh, I didn't want to put it to the test today, so... Anyway, when I talked about uh, safety, uh, that pe we, we know that people are safer in a community where they have more connections, more people know them, and more people know what their rights are, and they know, know what their rights as well to be, to be exercised. We know that any person in the community run ri runs risks of, of, uh, of if they're alone in the community uh, after dark or going to places we know there there's, uh, might be a, a higher crime area. So there's things we do in that way to keep ourselves safe. So no one's absolutely safe 
in, in our community. We just don't want to, we never want to see any of our, any citizens be victimized, um, but yet uh, the, the, the opportunity to maybe uh, be in the community and maybe seen as we're developing those opportunities as somewhat of a risk for a person with a disability. We want to make sure that the consequences of those risks are, are, as, uh, are mitigated, as much mitigated as possible. But I think all of us think of some of our best life lessons might have been learned through uh, the mistakes we might have made. And as long as the consequences from that, uh, that lesson weren't too profound, then uh, we're the wiser for it. In case you've forgotten, I'm Ian McKenna. And um, quite a few years ago, I, I was involved in, in work on uh, Handybus, you know, and Handybus seemed to be a really good thing and, you know, kind of uh, help people with disabilities. Um, having heard your talk, though, I'm beginning to think that perhaps Handybus isn't really so handy in the sense that... Um, it is taking it. It's only there for this particular group of people. And uh, that I'm just wondering, uh, your comment on that, should we be, in fact, encouraging, um, y you know, the regular buses and so on to, to accommodate people, perhaps, that is where we don't need handy bus and so on? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that is something that... Uh, would be of relevance to what you're talking about. I think so. Thanks, Ian. It, it, it does have relevance in that Handybus uh, was created probably around your time, Ian, when uh, it was to created so that people could travel. They said to travel with dignity uh, to whatever their destination was. And so it's, it's a valuable service. I know it is a door-to-door -door service for uh, lots of people that have mobility issues. I know that people that do the dialysis treatments at the hospital, if, uh, if they don't have other means of transportation, it's an excellent door-to-door -door service. And, and often it was just assumed that people with a developmental disability, that that would be their mode of transportation because it would get them door-to-door. -door. And, and especially if there was some mobility issues. So I think that the, the real purpose for Handybus is that for anybody that was taking regular transit could not negotiate from the their destination to the bus stop or the bus stop to their destination and mostly that would be because of mobility issues what happens is it becomes the traditional service for the person with a developmental disability and we don't realize that the city is actually being very progressive as far as its accessible buses. And there was often times that people that were dependent on a handy bus because they were in a wheelchair or something, that they, they couldn't have any spontaneous activities because the handy bus had to be booked no more than 10 days but no less than 7 days in advance. So it was very convenient for accessing your community spontaneously or if events came up uh, on short notice. But what happened is that the city buses, speak, uh, they're all flat floor accessible buses now and will accommodate wheelchairs. And, and sometimes that had been overlooked by the people that were supporting these individuals. That in fact, they've, you know, if they want to go somewhere, the most they're going to wait is, is 20 minutes. So the, the transit system and the city's dedication to, to curb cuts and making sure all the buses and transportation are accessible is great. And, and Handy Bus has its place, but certainly not just to have people on there because they have a developmental disability. It is a segregated service if it's used in that, in that way. My name is Van Christou. Thank you very much, David, for your comments today. Um, one of them that uh, really pleased me was the fact that uh, you mentioned that a lot of people now in this generation are 
being looked after locally rather than in institutions. But as our society is moving more and more towards corporate control and corporations uh, uh, dislodging people from their, from their communities and moving them around uh, uh, willy-nilly, uh, don't you see that problem as, as maybe uh, becoming more of a challenge in the future is to keep these dis- disabled people in their local community? Thanks, Van. I, I think there is, there can always be that pressure to provide congregate care. We've seen it before when they will, they'll, they'll have services for a, a person for whatever their issue is, and, and they'll put it in a, in a place and, and make other people go to that service. So we're, there is obviously congregate care will be cheaper and easier. But I don't think that that's what we want for citizens that, that have made an important contribution or can make an important contribution to the community to have them isolated in a congregate care facility because it's cheaper and easier. I don't think that that should be the basis of our, our human caring or our caring for our, our fellow citizens. Hi, my name's Veronica Mundell. Um, I've been a frontline service worker for many years, um, the past 12 years, and just recently was a career developer <laughs> for clients with disabilities. My question is, uh, you had mentioned that before clients were, or people with disabilities were in institutions, and now they're in more home-like settings, which is what I've been working in for the past 10, 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious, because I've been working in Calgary, I, I see a lot of isolation, and uh, there's not much cohesion um, between the different various uh, disability groups. And so when frontline workers go out there just by themselves with the client, how would you advocate for or suggest a more um, cohesive approach so that n- not only the organizations are working together, but the clients are then getting to interact with other people with disabilities? Thanks, Veronica. Um, I think that lots of times... Uh, People with disabilities do tend to end up in the the same place seeking services. And I would be more excited to see if the the support person was looking to make connections with others, with peers, that we would consider peers to be people that have the same interest, have the same, around the same age, and and are in the the places for the right reasons. So I I don't believe it's important that their their friends, they would have to connect with other people with disabilities. That will be part of the social circle and naturally will be. I know that people do tend to seek out... uh, fellow citizens that face the same social or economic situations and often that where the, that's where it's found and you get to share uh, some, some of those struggles and, and commiserate and, and figure out solutions to them. But I think overall that that shouldn't be where we look for to, to have people with disabilities meaningfully engaged. It should be in activities that they're interested in. We find so often, and I think it's true with everybody, when people are engaged in something that they want to be part of and they're surrounded by people that want the same sorts of things, they tend to do it very well. And and oftentimes people, when they they may be grouped together in something that's unfulfilling, will express themselves, the frustration in, in it being unfulfilling in certain ways that people might think would exclude them from having the social ability to be to be in the, the greater community. So it, it's almost like a catch-22. If you look at inclusion as something that's 
decree or has to be earned or or it's just uh, something we're going to do for now, uh, then then it, then it's not real. It may, the reason we might be seeing the, uh, limited social skills is because there's limited opportunity to to exercise and learn what those those social skills are. I would say if I had a developmental disability, I wouldn't want to be in any program that said pre, because usually pre means never if you have a dis disability. So. My name is Bob Campbell. My, my question to you is, I think it's safe to say we've made a lot of progress over the last several years in terms of attitudes and getting services and so on for people with developmental disabilities. If in an ideal world, where would you like to see things go uh, in the future in terms of uh, providing services and, and uh, you know, the larger picture of being inclusive in terms of uh, working with people with disabilities? That's a great question, Bob. I think that in in my time in this field, I, I've always had a dream of what an inclusive community would be like, and especially in regards to people with developmental disabilities. But what we really realize is that anything that barriers up a person from full citizenship needs to be removed or needs to be addressed, and and that that includes any any marginalized or potentially vulnerable part of the population that they they need to have the opportunity to be part of the community, to have that sense of belonging that, that when good things happen in your community, you share in the success of those good things, and when bad things you happen, happen you, you, you help in, in, in uh, fixing whatever it has, has gone on. So I suppose that would be my vision. Services, we know that people with, with disabilities, as many will need services and to different extents, so I'm not suggesting that we will go without services, but we certainly will let them get on with their job of, of really facilitating community inclusion. Hi, Dave. I'm Bob Babke. Um, as a, a parent of a, uh, a person with developmental disabilities, and he's reached the full age of 38 years now, uh, I know that growing up in, in our family, that it meant a lot to his uh, older siblings. It, it taught them an awful lot about patience and tolerance and even pride in what they could do. I sense that you're a very proud man for the, for the work that you do. And I know that my wife and I get no higher degree of satisfaction than when we can do something for our son or his associates and uh, the people that he deals with all the time. Um, how do you get that message out of the absolute fulfillment that you can get from helping someone that really needs the help uh, as a person with disabilities. Thanks. Thanks for the question. I'm always concerned when Mr. Babke steps up to the mic. Yeah, I expect you're going to be roasted, but thank you very much for taking it easy on me. Um, we do, uh, I, I think that we do get that. I, I'm in a wonderful position because the members of, of our organization are, are enlightened citizens, but for the most part families, and that, that do um, come together and talk about the successes of their family member and the contribution they make. And, and I guess that that's the, the essence of it. We need to, to make the community aware of, of the, great, the great contribution and the positive effect that, that people with disabilities can have, their inspiration, the, the resilience that we see uh, in people with disabilities is ad, an admirable quality um, that, that we, we all, I think all wish we had in overcoming some adversities and keeping a, a positive spirit. I think great potential to lead the way in those ways, um, when I talk about 
that the organization I work for, that's mo families for the most part, what I find is it's, we're, we're a values-based organization and families will, will hold true to that value no matter what pressures are put upon it. And when I, I get to do my job and, and I can always refer back to those values because families don't change. They know what's important and they keep working towards that goal, highly motivated uh, to, to achieve good things. For their family member, we know for our community as, as well that those, those are important things to achieve. So it makes my job uh, very clear on, on the message that I, that I can share that every day in my work. And so I'm plows, proud to be in that position. Another guy that scares me when he comes to the mic. <laughs> We're not strangers. I'm Tom Kane, though, for the listening audience on SACPA Radio or whatever. Um, Dave, I appreciate your comments today that you were able to talk so much about what needs to be done to make us conscious of being a welcoming community and the benefits that come from that. Um, I love some of your stories. Um, I'm concerned about education, though. I think I'm with Van on aren't we in a very difficult situation these days where Maybe educators are not going to be able to do the job they want to do and they know how to do, but government funding isn't there for education in general. Um, like one of the side benefits when people went to from Dorothy Gooder School getting closed, and Dorothy Gooder didn't want the school. Just a quick comment on that. We talked about it at our table. Dorothy Gooder didn't want a segregated school. She had to do that because there wasn't uh, a welcome in the regular schools. People moved from Del Bonita and from other communities to come to Dorothy Gooder because you couldn't get into the regular schools. But once they demonstrated that, number one, the kids could learn, number two, teachers could adapt how they teach, then the demonstration project was finished. They closed Dorothy Gooder School, even though Terry Bland didn't like it, um, <laughs> roasted us for a week on his radio program. At the end, he put his hand over the microphone. And he said, nice going. I, we... Um, I wasn't intending to. I just wanted to get a good debate going, but I was with you all the way. <laughs> well, well, now it's many years later, and the, the students that went to Winston Churchill High School from Dorothy Gooder, some of them are working in Round Street uh, Cafe that lots of us love to go because it's a welcoming place. It's a welcoming place because um, Bonnie Greenshields used to be at Winston Churchill High School, and now she's hired a bunch of people that quietly slip in with their disabilities sign in their back pocket. They don't have it wear, They don't have to wear it in their forehead. But they're working there at Round Street. Now, that's wonderful things that have happened because of that inclusion. I'm afraid it's going to get back to, with that, a segregated thing. Uh, I see some schools, and you're more on top of it than I am these days. Um, what's happening in the schools, and are they getting enough funding? Are they, going to, are they starting to put kids into one classroom all the time because it's, they don't get enough funding to have an aid in the classroom? So what's happening in the schools, and... Are there enough? Uh, is there enough awareness at government level that they need to be well funded? I like what uh, Bridget Pasteur does. She donates some of her salary back to uh, to helping with people with disabilities because she thinks that uh, she didn't need a raise. So, what are we doing for education in the schools? How's the funding these days? And what are you going to do about getting the funding to be maintained so we don't go back to what Van is saying? Maybe we'll institutionalize them, or we'll open up the Dorothy Gooder School again. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, thanks for that, Tom. For people that don't know, Tom was actually had my position for 25 years and, and is actually one of my, my mentors in this community. Uh, I remember uh, first time I met Tom was I was at a meeting where they, there was a service providers were coming out with a new way to serve people with disabilities, and, and the government was behind it and funding it, and, and I thought, oh, okay, i got to learn this stuff. Uh, I think I had it figured out what people with disabilities need, but I better pay attention. I'm not getting it, and... The guy in the back of the room had red hair in those days. Uh, now here we go again. One more way to serve people with, through, with disabilities. I thought, I like that guy. So it, uh, it's great to have Tom here today, and, and thanks for the question, Tom. As you know, we, the, uh, people may have heard there was a, a consultation process called Setting the Direction for Special Education in Alberta, and Minister Dave Hancock promoted this. We're, we're going we're gonna to reevaluate special education. We're going to create inclusive schools and, and uh, we're going we're gonna to possibly do away with codes and these sorts of things. We're still leery if we don't define inclusion. I- inclusion is always based in, in the regular classroom in a regular school, in a neighborhood school where the siblings go. So, and it sounded good, lots of input from families. We took, it was a three-phase process, and we had families from Lethbridge that took part in all the, the phases, including the final one in, in Edmonton. But we know that there's been uh, a severe lack of funding for all the ministries, uh, given the economic situation. And, of course, we're quite proud of, of the things that we've achieved um, as a community for people with, with disabilities, but it's, it, there's a great potential for backsliding, and we have to guard against that. Um, I, I think that kids with disabilities or learning differences have, have proven in school, they enhance the school environment, but if they're looking where they're going to cut money, if they're looking at cheaper and easier, which the government denies they will ever do when it comes to the education of our children, you have to look at those that might be the easiest to to then segregate or or serve congregately to save money or not get the quality education they're 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 entitled to, and those identifiable ones could be the kids with disabilities. But I I don't I, I don't think that uh, the community would let that happen at this time as long as the the community is informed and and families tend to have a way of being informed and being connected and involved and we'll we'll share that with the community my name's monica mark and we've just lived in lethbridge for two years but i have a granddaughter who's high functioning autistic And I feel sorry for any parent who doesn't have some education behind them or who is not a fighter because her parents had to really go to the wall with this kid to get the help that the government and the school districts say that they provide or are supposed to provide. They discovered at one point where she was supposed to have had uh, an on-site helper at the school for that the money that was supposed to have been and, and I must say that it took them about a year and a half to two years to get this helper then they found that this helper was being used for five children instead of the one that the finances were going in for so parents really have to watch and make sure that their child's education 
that the money that is going in under that child's name, that it's going to them and not to four or five other children as well. Because that became a real problem. They had to really fight for that. Thanks so much for your comment. We do, uh, you talk about families needing to be uh, really smart and, and educated and, and to figure out the systems and, and what really their, 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 their family member, their, their child are, are entitled to. That was a big part of the creating the Lethbridge Association for Community Living. It wasn't fair that every family needed to learn about every service and system and, and, and funding model and, and and how to and, and have to do that struggle to put those things in place in the in the right way for their child. So fam, that's when families came together and said that we need to sh- have this information. We need to share our wisdom and experience. So when we meet those families with their 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 youthful ideals about what's going what the future is for their family member, that they can get that information readily and and quickly. And as well, uh, it, it's great to bring somebody with along with you. Not that families are not competent, but they're very emotionally involved in situations when it comes to negotiating to meet the, the, to have to fight to have the needs of your child met. It can be very emotional, and so if you bring somebody, a trusted person, along, and certainly that's a role that's a role of LACL as well, or or a friend, somebody that can be a little bit more objective and see the, the incongruencies and really help you get what your child is entitled to and and what we're all entitled to. We're as a community, we're we're all entitled to the highest quality of education and and educational experience for for all children so it's uh, we we have to ensure and safeguard that those things happen and again it's that that sharing of wisdom of families that that keeps things uh, keeps things true and honest and and ultimately benefits all of us hi I'm Bev Mundelathystone. I've been an educator, teacher, psychologist over the 40-year career. (laughs) And I've certainly seen the changes that you've talked about. And I thank you for putting uh, Dorothy Dalglish School, uh, Dorothy Gooder School, in in its historical context. Thank you for that. Um, I guess my greatest concern as a psychologist, is that um, we have a government that has um, a very low IQ. It's very simple in its solutions. Um, It wants things to be very, very simple and not complex. Our government does not want... Is this too crackly? Our government does not want the diversity that you talked about. Our government does not want a community that has all shades of the rainbow. It wants something that's one size fits all. And that's the biggest problem, whether you're talking about the Ministry of Education, uh, Alberta Ed, or any of the other ministries. It wants things simple and clear cut. Now, I have to uh, uh, really laud uh, Sakpa for the the student speeches at the University of Lethbridge. Is it getting worse? Sounds like a windy day in Lethbridge. Go ahead. (laughs) Can I come up there? Sure. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, Tuesday night, at, <clears throat> Tuesday afternoon at the University of Lethbridge, Sakpa, University of Lethbridge, and Elberg had one of their speak offs. 
<coughs> semifinals of the students speaking on post-secondary education. And one of the speakers, um, Keith Gardner, talked about the need to provide speaking places for community, that the only way we're going to actually change community so that it fits our view, our diverse view of community, is to talk about it and to change the community through our combined knowledge. So we're not going to find that in government. Government's going to continue to reduce. And my fear, like Tom Kane's, is that we're going to go back to resource rooms. That's really my fear with the cutbacks that are happening, and I can see it heading there with some of the schools. So that, that terrifies me after having watched over four decades this tremendous inclusion and changes, and of course we've seen it as witnessed by some of the examples here. So my question would be, since you are with a group that's of a very informed, compassionate, and uh, um, <clears throat> energetic adults, how can we use that force to help to create a large community that goes beyond the group that you're talking about, people with developmental disabilities, but we look at all aspects of our society, because as long as we fragment parts into groups, like the government's idea of aging in place is the same idea, you know, we're going to exclude people, keep them away from, from uh, having really full lives. How are we going to do this in a broader, um, you know, broader spectrum? Well, thanks for the question and comments. That was very nice. Thanks. Um, I think that, uh, again, people can, can, will only be marginalized when society allows it to happen. If, uh, if we historically, if we've cut any corners in education, it might have been around differences, visible differences, and those sorts of things. And the progress that we've made in making sure that every child in Alberta, regardless of country of origin or first language or disability or learning style, are entitled to an education in this province. And, and actually, they don't even have to be a citizen of the country. If they're here, they're entitled to an education. And uh, so government makes that 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 stand on this is what education is in Alberta. And really, that's that's our that's our right to say that this is what we want. And, and there's, um, by, by forcing kids with learning difficulties into segregated environments, it's essentially saying that somehow they're differently human and not worthy of the education that, that all other kids do. I, I dream of that day when, when I, I know that if I drop my daughter off at school who doesn't have a disability and I drop her off with confidence that she's going to get a great education because, boy, if she doesn't, uh, they're going to hear from me. And But I never give it another thought once she's in school for the day. And the, the struggle that it has been and can be for families to make sure that they're there, they could they could have even the smallest sense of that confidence as was going on in that school for their child is it are good things. It, it it comes from collaboration. It comes from the support of many as well to make sure that the the best educational experience happens for every child. What we would hopefully see it, the, the natural positive results of inclusion is classmates or, or other kids in the school and other families in that school will know that by removing a child from from that mainstream and, and putting them in some segregated congregate classroom would actually take away and be to the detriment of the, the school, the school, school spirit and the community. So once again, a chance for the, the, the community to rally around in support of, of all citizens. Okay. Thanks, Dave, for your wonderful answers. And 
Thanks, everybody, for your great uh, questions. Um, a, a quick reminder, we meet next week at 12 o'clock on the 11th, and uh, Bev sort of introduced the topic for next week. It'll be the, the student uh, winners of the um, Sakpong Campus uh, speaking competition to, uh, will be presenting their uh, thoughts on what are the benefits of post-secondary. So uh, hopefully you'll join us uh, next week, same place, same time, to uh, participate in that as well. Um, as we wrap, out, uh, wrap up the, the day today, I just want to thank Dave once again for uh, his wonderful insight in all this and, and, and helping in a positive way that uh, we can move towards a more inclusive community. 